1: Welcome back to another episode of Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkoff, Managing Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. This week, Donald Trump pulled a move straight out of the dictator's handbook and fired FBI Director James Comey. New 11
0: and developing right now calls for a special prosecutor after President Trump's stunning decision fire the director of the FBI.
1: Just three months ago, this was the man that Donald Trump blew a kiss
0: at and said he's become more famous than me. James Comey didn't find out from this letter uh, from the president. He actually found out by watching, looking up and seeing it on the television. He was apparently talking to agents. Demands for a special prosecutor are louder tonight and Democrats are even jumping to Watergate comparisons.
1: Just a reminder that Comey was most famously leading an investigation into the Trump campaign ties with Russia, although Trump only wants you to remember that he was leading an investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails.
2: I would also like to point out that Jeff Sessions, the current attorney general who ultimately recommended the firing of James Comey for fucking up the email investigation, has also himself fucked up. He lied under oath about his ties to Russia in his confirmation hearings. And as far as I know, he still has
1: a job. Pradji, that's so cute to be like, it's like, Jeff Sessions still has a job that's so crazy as if Trump is firing people based on doing something wrong or right. Democracy is cute, yes. So we're going to just quickly do a spicy time so early in the episode because it's the best spicy time ever. It's just spicy in a nutshell. It makes me so happy. So on Tuesday when Comey's firing was announced, Sean Spicer had just been interviewing with Fox Business at the White House, and then he had to get back to his office, but he couldn't because there were so many reporters (laughs) around, and so he knew he didn't want to have to pass them to to try to explain why Comey was fired because he's an adorable little coward, and can we just, I want to quickly read the Washington Post has such a funny little description of what he had to do are you ready? (laughs)
2: I'm—I'm—I've been waiting.
1: (laughs) Okay. So the context is Spicer doesn't really know why Comey was fired. He doesn't have a good answer yet, and he wants to email a statement to the press but not answer questions in person. So, quote, he ended up standing in the doorway of the press office around 5.40 p.m. and shouting a statement to reporters who happened to be nearby. He then vanished with his staff locking the door leading to his office. Later on in the article— Fast forward a little bit, Spicer has escaped his office. Now he's outside, behind cable news pundits. After Spicer spent several minutes hidden in the bushes behind these sets, Janet Montesi, an executive assistant in the press office, emerged and told reporters that Spicer would answer some questions as long as he was not filmed doing so. Spicer then emerged. Just turn the lights off. Turn the lights off, he ordered. We'll take care of this. Can you just turn the lights off? Spicer got his wish and was soon standing in near darkness between two tall hedges, with more than a dozen reporters closely gathered around him.
2: (laughs) He's—I'm developing an affinity for Sean Spicer. He's—I know how can you not of a man? (laughs) He's like a little baby. He's—he's like the comic relief court jester. He's so like an evil cartoon villain.
1: He so is. It's really crazy that this. Administration is filled with such stereotypes, but Sean Spicer is—he's like he's, a parrot.
2: He's he's Iago. He's Iago. the parrot from Aladdin. <laughs> That's
1: it. I've had it. I hate to be dramatic, but it's time for me to fly the coup I love him. I mean, like, okay, he's evil, but he's really funny and cute too. <laughs> This week on the episode, we're going to discuss the deeply flawed Electoral College with Cynthia Terrell, Director of Representation 2020, an initiative
3: of the nonpartisan electoral reform group Fair Vote. It's maybe a surprise to some listeners, but the United States ranks behind 99 nations for women's representation. But first, our week in weenies.
2: It's becoming harder and harder to
1: choose just three weenies every week. I know. Luckily, we have infinity weeks until we get nuked. So we don't have infinity. We have like twelve.
2: <laughs> we're, ver- we're very lucky. It's we have so thirty six more weenies that we
1: can focus
3: on.
2: <laughs> so our first weenie is the, all the Republican House Republicans who voted for the American Health Care Act. So last week they passed this health care bill that basically guarantees very few Americans will ever get access to health care, <laughs> which is exactly how a health care laugh. is supposed to that work. Anyway. I mean, i I cannot it's hard to describe just how bad this bill is. It just it really feels like it's pure evil. The right.
1: bill. if you remember our episode on the on the American Healthcare Act a couple weeks ago, it's that, but with the MacArthur Amendment, amendments, so worse, it's way worse. So this one cuts taxes
2: for the wealthy and actually enables discrimination against people with pre-existing conditions, which apparently is just being a human is a pre-existing condition. Um, having acne, having asthma, being pregnant. These are all (laughs) pre-existing conditions under which you could be denied insurance or see a spike in premiums. And also it would enable employers to start imposing like insurance caps. So that would, again, either see a raise in prices or just flat out you'd lose coverage for important care. And the vote passed in the House and Republicans, after it, it, this evil, evil, evil bill went through, Republicans literally got on a party bus and drank beer. Drank—not even— Bud I
1: lights. Mean, sorry, they drank Bud Lights. <laughs> bud Lights. That's just friggin' lame.
2: It was as if this was the Super Bowl and their team won, which is a great way to think about health care. Yeah. yeah. And later— one of the most shocking things, actually, no, everything is shocking about this, but some of the Republicans who voted on the bill admitted that they didn't even read it.
0: Have you read the whole bill?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, let's put it this way. People in my office have read all the parts of the bill. Uh, I don't think any individual has read the whole bill, but we, that's, that's why we have staff.
3: Uh, you know, I have to rely on my
1: staff, and I can probably tell you that I read every word, and I wouldn't be telling you the truth, nor would any other member. Uh, we rely on our staff, and we rely on our committees, and I'm comfortable that I understand this bill in its entirety, Wolf, uh, without pouring through every word. And uh, I'm just being quite honest. That's the way it is. It's just— it's we. So- I mean, we really are very— very literally, too literally maybe, are being governed by a group of stereotypical high school movie bullies. Like they're drinking, they're like pounding Bud Light after they shove a guy in a locker. And then they're like, I didn't even, I didn't even do my homework. Some bitch did it for me. (laughs) Right? Isn't that what bullies are like? That's completely (laughs) accurate. Our next weenie is Ted Cruz. On Monday, Sally Yates, The woman who served as attorney general under Trump for 10 days before being fired for refusing to defend the Muslim travel ban as constitutional appeared on Capitol Hill on Monday to testify before the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Crime and Terrorism. She was supposed to talk about Trump's campaign's ties to Russia, but (laughs) whoever talks about what they're supposed to talk about. Ted Cruz a human circumcision, decided to test Yates's knowledge of past statutes.
3: By this express text of the statute, it says, quote, whenever the president finds that the entry of any alien or of any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the United States, he may by proclamation and for such period as he shall deem necessary, suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants, or impose on the entry of aliens any restrictions he may deem appropriate. Would you agree that that is broad statutory authorization? I would, and I am familiar with that. And I'm also familiar with an additional provision of the INA that says, no person shall receive preference or be discriminated against in
0: issuance of a visa because of race, nationality, or place of birth. That, I believe, was promulgated after the statute that you just quoted. And that's been
3: part of the discussion with the courts with respect to the INA, is whether this more specific statute trumps the first one that you just described. But my concern was not an INA concern here. It rather was a constitutional concern. I think that's
1: very cool. That's Telling you knew exactly what was going on and really outlaw schooled Ted Cruz. You met, you know, the expression, you mess with the, uh, you're going to get you mess with the best, you're going to get burnt. What's he you mess with the queen, you're going to get kinged.
2: I don't I don't know. I don't,
1: you just said three different <laughs> quotes there. But it's the same structure. There's one right one. I don't remember what it is. That's how I feel about Sally.
2: So our final weenie of the week is Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who I'm pretty sure has been featured before as a weenie on our program. Sounds
1: familiar. Yeah. But who can remember? Who
2: can remember? He has signed into law a bill targeting sanctuary cities and undocumented immigrants, basically saying that law enforcement in Texas will now be able to ask a person about their immigration status when they're arrested or detained. And it also charges law enforcement officials and other leaders with misdemeanors if they refuse to accommodate a federal immigration request. So this law is truly a gift to racists because it basically means it enables racial profiling. It basically means that if you're a person who uh, an enforcement officer just suspects by looking at you, if you're an undocumented immigrant, so basically if you're a brown person, they can now ask you that at a, you know, routine traffic stop if you have like a busted taillight and they need to pull you over and then you can end up detained by federal immigration officials. So this is really scary. And nobody likes this law, not even police officers, because it takes away from the actual work they have to do, which is chasing criminals. So (laughs) Greg Abbott knew, clearly he knows about how controversial this law is because he announced the sweeping legislation via Facebook live stream. Here's an elected official who literally used the same form of communication that Angsty 12 year olds use to stream their bad poetry.
1: (laughs) Well, I want to thank you all for
0: joining me this evening as I sign a law that will ban sanctuary cities in Texas.
1: Our next segment, oh, we're so lucky we get a spicy time and a Where is Paul Ryan hiding? Prachi, you know where Paul Ryan is hiding.
2: I do, but I want
1: you to guess. (laughs) It's not behind the bushes. No, Unless, that's where well, that's where like, Sean Spicer is. That's but I mean, maybe yeah. they were there together. Maybe they were like, "Okay, bro, you go out there first, and then I'll go, and then I'll, I'll wait forty-five <laughs> minutes, and then I'll, I'll go out the other way." That's my guess. I like they your, were there together. I like
2: your uh, collective spicy and Paul Ryan voice.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's both, like both of theirs. A dumb jock. <laughs> yeah.
2: Okay. Where is he? So Paul Ryan is hiding in plain sight <laughs> in Harlem. <laughs> Oh, yeah. At the <laughs> Success Academy to meet with children whose healthcare he wants to snatch away. And he was met by these protesters. It was a real life Game of Thrones moment.
0: Shame. Shame.
1: I mean, it was game of Thrones. It's so funny. It's that so Paul Bryan is hiding in plain sight. And he's, he's just like in Harlem. Just, a bunch of people are seeing him, but like he doesn't have to deal with it. But he this doesn't have to right deal now. with it.
2: And he he met with, like, here's the gut punch. He met with autistic kids whose healthcare will definitely, definitely be affected by this god awful bill that he is championing. He
1: is such a D bag. P bag.
2: Ugh, oh, shame, shame, <laughs> shame, shame, shame. Shame,
0: shame. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail.
1: Our Dick of the Week is the Electoral College, which, as some of you probably know, is how we decide who is our president. (laughs) Maybe this year. I don't know if you paid attention this year. May have heard something about it. If you have ever been to, like, a Trump press briefing, every single time they hand out a map of the Electoral College, you're like, here's what we won. Here's what we didn't win, but we should have.
2: And the reason that we're talking about this this week, even though the election happened months and months and months ago, (laughs) is not because we're... Donald Trump. It's because this week a group called Representation 2020 released a report about gender parity and it talks about how women are represented in the US government and how basically that like there aren't any women in the US government and like there might not be enough women in the US government for the rest of our lives unless we have serious reforms to our current voting structure. So,
1: as always, (laughs) Prachi, tell us how it's racist. (laughs) It's
2: racist. It's so (laughs) racist. Okay. So a lot of people will tell you that the Electoral College emerged as a state's rights issue, and that is true, but it's not the full background. So the Electoral College was first suggested at the Philadelphia Convention in 1787 when the framers were trying to establish a national election system. And though they liked the idea of a direct voting system, Virginia slaveholder James Madison, who went on to become America's fourth president, said that the South would never agree to a direct representational voting system because the North outnumbered the South and therefore would just get more of a voice in elections. So instead, he and others introduced the infamous three-fifths compromise, uh, which counted black slaves as three-fifths of a person to boost the population count of the South. So the South had like around, they had more than half a million slaves. So when black slaves were counted, again, not as full people, and they didn't have the rights of people. They just were counted as three-fifths of a person for the purpose of the census, for the purpose of votes, basically. So Southern states suddenly had a lot more electoral votes by including slaves. Um, So this not only accommodated slaveholding, but it even incentivized it among states. So as Yale constitutional law professor Akhil Reed Amar has noted, the more slaves a state had, the more electoral votes it would have. And therefore, if it freed black people, a state would lose votes. Um, He noted in an essay in Time that, quote, for 32 of the Constitution's first 36 years, a white slaveholding Virginian occupied the presidency. And according to the African-American Registry, even after Congress abolished the importation of slaves in 1808, Southern slaves continued to illegally breed and add slaves to boost
1: their political power. So today, the Electoral College is basically hated by everybody. Uh, According to a Gallup poll, only one-third of Americans want to keep it. And according to the National Archives, there have been more proposed constitutional amendments about the Electoral College. Seven hundred proposals in two hundred years than any other topic ever. I don't know what we would want to pass something more about. I don't know. Maybe healthcare. <laughs> maybe bad health care. Maybe bad health care. Um, but there haven't. So Obviously, passing a constitutional amendment, which is what it would take to change the system that we elect our president through, is very, very hard. It has to be passed by three-quarters of all the states. And most states, or at least the people who are in power in most states, have benefited from the electoral college. So why would you want to change something? Why would the people in power want to change something that is getting them into power? A great question. And that's why corruption exists. So— <laughs> In that same vein, the only times the Electoral College has reversed the popular vote, it only happens in very close elections. It doesn't happen when there's one clear winner. It's only happened four times in, according to political science professor Julia Azari, she wrote this in 538. So it happened in 1876 when Rutherford B. Hayes beat Samuel Tilden, in 1888 when Grover Cleveland beat Benjamin Harrison, and then— Fast forward to 2000, when George W. Bush beat Al Gore, and in 2016, fuck, <laughs> I wrote that in my notes. I said it too. Um, so all of the losers, I don't know if you like off the top of your head can say which party Samuel Tilden belonged to, but let me remove the guesswork. All of the losers are Democrats. So basically, the Electoral College has only fucked over In history, one party. So why would one whole party want to fix a system that has kind of helped it in a couple really close cases? So the LA Times writes that there was one time that we got very, very close to reforming the Electoral College, and it was in 1969 when Republicans and Democrats both united in service of this cause. It was after the 1968 election where Richard Nixon beat Democrat Hubert Humphrey. But the election was stressful for both of them, for Nixon and Humphrey, because former Alabama governor George Wallace, the same person who famously said,
3: Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation
0: forever.
1: Put that on a pillow and then burn the pillow. In the 1968 election, he won five southern states and 46 electoral votes despite not being either party's candidate. So Nixon and Humphrey were very freaked out that maybe it, there would be a tie between the two and there would have to be some sort of runoff. Anyway, anyone got, everybody got very hot on reform. Nixon said, I believe the events of 1968 constitute the clearest proof that priority must be accorded to electoral college reform. And so there was an amendment that he supported – Um, that the president would be decided by popular vote, but he also proposed that the president could be elected by a plurality of 40%. And if no candidate got 40%, a runoff would happen. This proposal came to a floor vote in the House, which had passed overwhelmingly, but it was eventually filibustered in the Senate after a group of Southern senators protested it because they thought that it would make the most populous states too influential, which (laughs) like— Oh, more people get to decide the election because there are more people there. This feels like not a valid criticism. I would agree. So this last election, as everybody can't stop talking about, including us, I think really demonstrated why the Electoral College is so broken or has always kind of been broken.
2: Yeah, because Clinton won the popular vote by about 3 million, getting more votes even than Obama did in 2012. But she lost by a really wide margin in the Electoral College because she lost votes in key swing states, which
1: overwhelmingly went to Trump. So it's just a handful of states that end up deciding the future of. Right. And it's like if you want to have any political sway, you have to move to Pennsylvania.
2: Which a a state where I am from. Actually, go back. I'm not going back.
1: (laughs) We'll do the podcast remotely.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um. And I mean, this has led to a huge surge in women running for office for 2018 and beyond, partially because of Clinton's loss, but also because Donald Trump's treatment of women throughout the campaign and the assault on women's rights by the cabinet of basically all dudes deciding to squash our reproductive rights is really motivating women to fight back. But because of our current voting system, they're gonna have a really hard time gaining those seats. So, now joining us to explain why women are having such low representation in politics, we have Cynthia Terrell, Director of Representation 2020, an initiative of the nonpartisan electoral reform group, Fair Vote. Cynthia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
1: So, as the Electoral College functions right now, a voter in a sparsely populated area of the country would often have more influence than a voter would who lives in. A packed city
3: on one of the coasts or something like that. Can you talk about why that is? As perhaps many of your listeners know, the Electoral College was put into the Constitution at a time when there were no models, really, for how a democracy should work. And um, the thought was at that time that having this Electoral College scheme would um, somehow protect smaller states. But as we have seen it in practice in the last number of elections, it really distorts the outcomes of elections. And that obviously is a problem. And it means that many voters in many states don't have a chance to impact the outcome of the election. And that only contributes to the sense of disconnection, I think, that most voters have with the electoral process. Um, and the fact that um, huge populations, New York, California, Texas, you name it, are really not states that presidential candidates campaign in or even govern toward once elected. Um, there are many different kinds of reforms being talked about. The one, uh, the organization that I'm associated with, Fair Vote. Uh, works on the most is this national popular vote effort, which is a terrific effort led by the national popular vote team to make every vote and every state matter equally. And if that were the case, then we would see presidential candidates traveling to every part of the country, small states and large states, to appeal to voters. And that, I think, would be a significant improvement to the way we elect presidential candidates now.
2: So Representation 2020 recently released a report on gender parity that found that we're basically failing to represent women at every level in the government in America. Can you tell us a little bit more about the report and the findings?
3: We define parity as the equal representation of men and women in legislative bodies over a period of years. It's maybe a surprise to some listeners, but the United States ranks behind 99 nations for women's representation And given that statistic, we thought that it was particularly important to dig down deep and see what's going on at the local level, state legislative level, that uh, contributes to this lack of representation by the time we get up to the federal level. Um, We created a gender parity index to measure progress toward parity in the states. And uh, just one state, New Hampshire— stands out and has gotten above um, 50%, which is the target if we're uh, seeking parity.
2: Can you tell us about
3: how you came up with the ranking and what is the worst state? Sure. Um, Into the formula went the three most recent governors, other recent statewide executive offices, the four most recent US senators, the most recent US representative, the most recent number of women in the state legislature, and the number of women serving in mayors in cities over 30,000, and executives in the five largest counties. So that's a pretty wide range of offices. And we created a point system for those different offices and then translated that point system into a grade system because um, I think we're all more familiar with grades and what they mean. And with those grades, um, I think it's pretty telling that there's only one state, New Hampshire, that has an A, There's one state, Washington State, that has a B. And I'll mention both of those use multi winner districts. And uh, then there are 15 states that have a C grade. But there are 28 states that get a D and four that are failing, absolutely, in terms of gender parity. So I think that's pretty telling that the majority of states are failing or are uh, getting a D in gender parity in this country. So if that's not a wake-up call to uh, look at embracing some new tactics to elect women, I'm not sure what else is. Oh, in Mississippi, uh, receives the lowest grade. Um, It gets just 5.8 points on our measure, which is a failing grade of F. It's the only state that has never elected a woman to the governor's mansion or to the U.S. Congress.
1: How is it possible that we are behind 99 other countries aren't we? Aren't we like the woke, good, good to be a woman country?
3: Oh, I, well, that's a great question. There are lots of ways that women's uh, representation and equality is impacted. There are social factors, economic factors, education factors. But I think the the simplest answer to that is that we have different rules and systems that govern electoral outcomes in this country. And um, as I said before, the United States is a very old democracy, but that means that we put some stuff into motion when we started this country that has really disadvantaged women candidates and candidates of color. And now, as it turns out, um, Republican women as well are disadvantaged by some of the very rules and systems that made our country unique 230 years ago.
2: What are those rules and systems that are disadvantaging women and people of color, and, and what are the those 99 other countries doing that we aren't?
3: The 99 countries, um, of course, are varied and are doing a lot of different things. But the there are three main buckets of things that they are doing that I think have a significant impact on who gets elected. The first is that they're very intentional about their recruitment of candidates, and Though the practice of this varies from country to country, they have uh, some—over 100 countries have some type of quota in place. So it's either a constitutional quota or it's a a legislated quota or simply a voluntary quota. In many cases, the parties have decided— in order to um, to get to gender parity, we are going to set a target for the number of women we have in our party list. And um, it happens in all sorts of different ways. But it's that intentionality about who is getting recruited that we think is, is – leading to the success of those countries. Political scientists agree that those uh, targets for gender are the biggest factor in how well a uh, a country does in terms of women's representation. So that's one bucket of things. That determines how many women actually run at every level of government. That's something that we can do. It's perfectly constitutional. Parties are independent agencies. PACs can do whatever they want with their money. So um, that's we see that as a real vehicle for change. The second thing that those countries do, and a growing number of municipalities and even a state now in the United States— are to move away from our very antiquated winner-take-all voting system that really distorts electoral outcomes, leads to very little competition, means that there are very few open seats, either at the federal level or at the state legislative level. That winner-take-all voting system really means that there's very little chance for newcomers, new voices into the political process to gain traction. And fortunately, there are lots of models to follow to change those winner-take-all voting rules There's a ranked-choice voting system, which opens up the process if you're electing a mayor or a governor. um, And if you combine ranked-choice voting with districts that are electing more than one person at a time, it's possible to have real balance in a legislative body, having women elected, men elected, Republicans elected, Democrats elected, people of color elected, lower-income people, you name it. The third bucket of reforms that we think is important is once those women have been recruited— and they've run in elections um, where there are open seats and they can get elected, then it's important to make sure that they are uh, able to serve and lead effectively once they get into office. So those reforms that other countries have used and we're beginning to see used in this country govern the workplace of a legislative body. So things like on-site childcare, the ability to cast a vote in a committee by proxy or electronically. So you, in case you can't travel from San Diego to Sacramento, you can still participate in the legislative process. Other things that we've uh, been proposing include making sure that committee leadership and other positions of power in a legislative body alternate by gender or at least gender conscious and so that women then rise to positions of leadership, which then equip those women to run for higher office.
2: So after Trump, we've seen a huge surge in women wanting to run, getting involved in organizations like Vote Run Lead, Emily's List started a new initiative specifically to train women. But you you mentioned these reforms and you mentioned that there aren't a lot of spots in upcoming elections. So I'm wondering, what do we do from here? Is that enough?
3: I think that the most effective thing to do right now is to take all that mobilized energy to continue um, exciting and energizing women to engage with the political process to get lots of candidates prepared to run at the local level at the school board level at the city council level where there may be more open seats in 2018 and 2020 and that all is terrific work I also think those women and men who support them and support the idea of, of better women's representation need to also embrace these structural changes to create more opportunities for those women to be successful electorally. I think it's a lesson in history in the United States that all major efforts to push for equity have involved um, changing rules and systems to make sure that there's a level playing field for people to participate. So Title IX is a great example. When I was growing up in the 1960s, there was not equal funding for girls and for boys, and that um, impacted their educational opportunities, their athletic opportunities. And it reached such a crisis point that uh, legislators, Patsy Mink, specifically from Hawaii, but others, got together to say, look, we really need to level the playing field for girls in education, and um, we need to do that through changing the way money is allocated for educational spending, making sure that girls have the same options that boys have in schools. Of course, that grew uh, to include athletic opportunities as well. And now other kinds of policy decisions are being litigated through Title IX as well. But um, the important thing, I think, is that we didn't just tell girls to try harder or somehow— convey that they were not ambitious enough or they weren't navigating the system well enough. We realized that it was time for serious rules and systems changes, and thus Title IX was born. Of course, we did that same thing uh, with the Voting Rights Act. We we didn't think, I think, for a second that somehow people of color were deficient in um, their ambition to run for office or to vote. We realized there were serious rules that were blocking people of color from participating meaningfully in elections and so thus we adopted the voting rights act and again With the Americans with Disabilities Act, we did the same thing. We recognized there were actually physical structures that were blocking people in wheelchairs from participating on a level playing field. And we didn't simply say to the people in wheelchairs, oh, you've got to try harder. But we recognized that those structural barriers were there. Of course, we also gave them the support they needed, but we eliminated the structural barriers in order for them to be successful.
1: So how can we hold on in general to the momentum of the 2016 election? I think we've all seen... A lot more women and people of color wanting to run for office. Um, How do we hold on to that to change the demographics of people in office for 2020 and 2024 and moving forward?
3: Well, there are a terrific number of new organizations that are popping up all over the country that are looking at specific districts where there may be openings, particular places where both uh, Republican and Democratic women can participate, where people of color can get involved. And I think that all is, is important. I think it also requires us, though, to look at these medium-term and longer-term solutions to make sure that those people um, who have an interest in participating get that there's work to be done on these structural changes, and that's something that people can do. Okay, Cynthia, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, thank you.
1: And now it's time for the best segment of our show, How to Handle the Dicks, where we talk about how we're handling all the dicks. Prachi, what's up? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> what's going on? Not a whole lot. You're not handling the dicks? Nah. Here's what, here's what I'm doing. You want to know? I do want to so know. I'm so excited about it. Maybe it'll jog my— Maybe it'll jog your heart. So, my heart. <laughs> um. Last night— Okay. So, I'm in need of a good snack. I don't have any good snacks. The snacks in our office do not provide me with the protein that I need late in the afternoon, right? Got yeah. it. Okay. So, everyone's like, eat almonds. I'm like, bitch, I hate almonds. What?
2: You hate almonds? I'm jealous. Ugh. I like almonds, but I have a nut, fruit, and nut allergy. So, I can't <laughs> oh, just no. like always eat. Oh, yeah, I'm, one, I'm You're one of allergic
1: those to nuts, and my How to Handle the Dicks is nut specific. <laughs> It's all about nuts.
2: Oh, my God. (laughs) Nuts about nuts.
1: So yesterday I was like, okay, I need to be able to eat almonds in order to keep my blood sugar at a stable level and to continue to handle the dicks with stable blood sugar. And so I was like, what do I like almonds when they taste like? And I was like, I like rosemary roasted almonds that are so fancy, you know? You only you only get those when you're somewhere fancy, right? Yeah, I've never even heard of such a thing. I don't know what, why I have heard of that, but I was, it, in my mind, I was like, that's something that I like. And so I made them last night. I was like, I'm going to make them. And I bought a pound of almonds and freaking roast in my own almonds. Damn. My how to handle the dicks is about roasting nuts. That's impressive. I handled the dicks by roasting their nuts. Uh, it's a dick pun. I mean— Probably not a pun, but like, bunch of dick language there. Did I like you, it. Did you do anything like that? Did you make a, like a trail mix? <laughs> no. Yeah,
2: yeah that's it. No, <laughs> I couldn't. I would. I, that's not something I could ever imagine myself doing. Making a trail mix. Maybe one day. <laughs>
1: I hate trail mix because I don't like nuts. Uh,
2: see, I like trail mix. I like nuts. I just can't eat that many of them because I got to be careful.
1: It's the curse of the magi. Uh, I mean it's not it's literally not at all
2: (laughs) I don't know what to say for my how to handle I hung out with a friend who I haven't seen I hung out with a friend (laughs) oh (laughs) friends I have them
1: and they help you get through shit it's great (laughs) friends how about you get one yeah that's our advice Thank you so much for listening to Big Time Dicks, and thank you so much to Cynthia Terrell for joining us. The show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Dries, Madana Mofiti is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader, and the show is mixed by Brad Fisher. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other people can find the show. You can also find us on Panoply, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. Got a Big Time Dick you want to tell us about?
2: Send a voice note or email to BigTimeDicks at Jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag BigTimeDicks. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then.